Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I'm Brittany Lombas. I'm James Cohn. And I'm Hannah Rassinen. And we are recording in James and Hannah's living room in Mid-City, New Orleans. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. Very brave of me to make that voice right now. I'm like, <laughs> I'm still like COVID recovering yeah. right now. It sounded extra uh, metal <laughs> and raspy. <laughs> I might have yeah. like upped my ability to do it, actually. Yeah. I should be sick all the time every time we record this. <laughs> well, it's been a while since we were all in the same room. What have y'all been watching since we last talked? So I saw a movie. This is off of my, my tax auditor streak. But uh, it is <laughs> another uh, Criterion Channel movie uh, called Elevator to the Gallows. It was directed in 1958 by Louise uh, Malle, Um It is about this man who is, he works for, I think he's like, a, like an arms manufacturer. Um, and he's having an affair with the arms manufacturer's wife. So he plans on murdering this man um, and then running off with his wife. And he was in the military. He's like this big shot spy guy. Um, and he is like very careful in his plotting in the beginning. And then <laughs> he uses a grappling hook to get up to his boss's um, office. He kills his boss. He like leaves uh, very surreptitiously and then as he's on his way out in his very nice convertible he realizes that he left the grappling hook up (laughs) (laughs) then he's like oh i gotta go back up he goes back up in the elevator and then the security guard turns the power off in the building and he's stuck in the elevator and then this like young ragamuffin teen takes his car um, for a joy ride with his like teenage girlfriend, and uh, this poor man's life just kind of starts to unfold due to his very just absolutely ridiculous mistake um, while he is stuck in the elevator. Um, so it's it's kind of this like it, it is a French film. It's kind of a comedy of errors, but it's also like it's very sad. Like this woman sees this teen in her lover's car and she thinks it's him and she's you know she's really upset um but it kind of like the it kind of unfolds for everybody in um catastrophic ways uh yeah so i don't know this is my on my run of old criterion films and uh i thought it was pretty good you um you had me at the grappling hook (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) grappling it's the grappling hook is only in the film for maybe um three seconds but okay i just like he leaves the office and i'm like i I said to the screen like what about the grappling hook and then he's like down on the body he sees the gravel he's like oh yeah yeah and he runs back up (laughs) (laughs) exactly so yeah uh yeah it was uh it was was pretty good i've never gotten a handle on that director Mm -hmm. but i always kind of like his movies like yeah he did Mighty Dinner with Andre, which we all watched right. recently. That was great. Yeah. And he did Pretty Baby, which was a very uncomfortable movie, but yeah. like is that a pretty the good one. One with like the grown woman who acts like a baby and is with an older man. No, but that's Or am I thinking of Baby Doll? <laughs> oh, that's Baby Doll, yeah. Shit. So uh, no, it's baby. the one where like Brooke Shields plays like a child prostitute in like eighteenth century New Orleans or something like that. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah. 
But for you specifically, we did um, one of his movies uh, for movie of the month called Black Moon. Oh wait, wait, wait. is that the one? It's it's With like the unicorn, like yeah. the dreamy like war. Oh, that's between- a great. Yeah, that's, I, that was good. I oh, that's that him movie. as well. Yeah, that's great. I, I guess I was bringing it up because it reminded me of um, the like storybook fantasy of uh, yeah, donkey skin. Yeah, yeah. I love oh. black. Yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, I love movies that make me like. I think about them and then I can't remember if I dreamed them or not. Yeah, it like, feels like that for sure. I love it. Yeah, uh, and th- this is a little dreamy too. Like the the mistress is wandering around the streets of Paris, like forlorn that her lover has abandoned her and not knowing, and she's mediating on the, like love and death. And I love movies where pe- very smart people have a plan that they execute to near perfection and then they just really fuck something up and they're totally fucked like this dude is just (laughs) stuck in the elevator like he's trying to you know get up out of the elevator then he's trying to like call people anyway it's not going well for him so yeah i thought this was a pretty uh pretty pretty fun watch um and now i'll open the floor up (laughs) <laughs> to one of you, um, Brittany, what have you been watching? So last night in Soho made it onto HBO Max, so I finally got around to watching it. And I didn't love it, but I liked it. I thought it was a, a fun watch. I kind of wanted it to be a lot weirder and grosser than it ended up being. Because mm. I thought that's what was going to happen, but it didn't. It was just a fun watch. Lots of pretty, like, neon colors and... Anya Taylor Joy wearing Taylor a bunch Joy of like sixties fashion. These like ridiculous, like devilish faces. I'm still kind of confused as to what was really happening because it's sort of like it starts off feeling like a possession movie. There's a you know a young fashion student who moves to London in like modern times and finds a flat that this older woman is in charge of and rents it, and then she starts having these like fever dreams where she's being like taken over by someone from the fifties. And it's like, at first, you know, I'm like, Oh, is she getting possessed by a ghost? And I think that's what we're supposed to think. Kind of. Also, she has a history of like mental illness in her family. So everyone's like, Oh, she's mad. She's losing it. I don't want to like spoil the ending, but the ending was kind of, I hated the ending. (laughs) I, I actually really wanted to see it. Okay. I still have not seen it. Okay. No spoilers, but no spoilers. I'm very, interested in this movie it's a beautiful like movie to watch i had fun brandon shaking his head (laughs) it was like one of those movies where it was like a friday night i got off of work and i'm like you know what i'm just like i don't want to think that much right now yeah period so i put that on and it was like whoa whoa and confusing at parts but i didn't give a shit that i was confused i kind of like that Mm -hmm. well you said it's streaming somewhere now it's on hbo max Max. oh hbo max all right yeah, so... Uh, I'm going to watch it soon. Yeah, I'm curious to see what you think about it, and we can all... Have you seen it? I've not seen it. Watch it too, but we can I, all hash it out. I did read the synopsis on Wikipedia, because uh, I couldn't stop You always that spoil I movies I know, for I yourself. can't help it. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm sick. Um, <laughs> oh, but, God. Yeah. But I feel like you still have to see it, because yeah, yeah, like absolutely. just to watch it unravel, it's interesting. I think, like... I saw the trailer and I was like, I am in 100%. I shall watch this. And then as it, I don't know, like as I started to hear things about it and I saw more trailers, like my excitement was kind of dulling. So then I was like, okay, I just want to know what happens. I'll see this eventually. Um, But yeah, your description like makes sense to me. It tracks based on 
<laughs> my feelings of the movie. Ooh. That's true. That's when we first got the AMC A list thing, mm-hmm. and that trailer oh. was every single movie we would go to. Yeah. And I think it was like it's a good trailer. It is yeah. a good yeah. trailer, man. but man, it's kind of like watching that Nicole Kidman. <laughs> thing at the beginning where it's just like after a while I'm like I'm over this. I've been through a whole journey with that where I like I love it, I hate it. Heartbreak feels good. I get good sad in if I miss it. Like yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, we I yeah, it feels like Stockholm syndrome a little bit. Like we we go to AMC almost exclusively because of the A-list and we're like god Nicole Kidman, what are you doing? And then we went to, I think we went to Canal Place and uh, it didn't play. And I was like, something's wrong. Well, I <laughs> love like at Britannia too, they'll play like, you know, the popcorn dancing, oh, like well, back in like the drive in. But I, I think I might get a little nostalgic for the Nicole Kidman when She's it goes be away. The next hot dog dancing. Apparently, going to run it through the rest of this year. So, oh, soak that's it, up. it? Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. I. When am I going to do that last We should movie go in like see- December 31st and yeah. like, uh, salute the screen. <laughs> yes, I love that idea. Yeah, it's like secretly comforting all of you. Um, I have not seen it, so I'm pretty bummed. The uh, Nicole Kidman thing. Really? Oh, no. wow. Oh, my gosh. You we should just have us- watch it online. It's I'll probably worth will. the watch. Thank you. Have we Thank you for ever me know about all it. gone to see a movie together? No. <gasps> I've taken... All of you individually yeah, to see yeah. movies, but maybe not. Right, we've maybe never not as a done group. a group. We've yeah. never done like a Swan Flicks movie viewing in a real theater. Yeah, sounds like an episode concept. Oh, that'd to me. be. Ooh, I like that'd it. That'd be wild. We could also just go for the Nicole Kidman part <laughs> and, and then we, Yeah, <laughs> bye bye. We got what we wanted. <laughs> we could have an episode of Nicole Kidman. <laughs> so uh, yeah, well, James, what have you been watching? So I've been watching a lot of noirs. Oh, I'm wow. just on Ooh. a big noir kick. Mm-hmm. Because Criterion has like a whole whole bunch, and they recently have this series of movies called Noir in Color. So like later noirs, like from the 50s, early 60s. And um, probably the best one I've seen recently was this movie called Bad Day at Black Rock. And it stars uh, Spencer Tracy, pretty famous actor from that time period. Um I think we talked recently how we don't like Westerns. We all kind of, and this is like a noir Western and it's really cool. It's so basically you have this little town of Black Rock seems to only be about 20 people, mostly brutish men and Spencer (laughs) Tracy just like comes off the train and immediately everyone is suspicious. Like what the hell is this guy doing? And he's in a suit and he's got one arm. Like he's obviously, and like World War II has just let Ooh. out, so you can kind of assume he's a war veteran. And he just starts snooping around, like, hey, what you you know, what's your town's deal? Like, what you guys doing here? And everyone is basically trying to be a cowboy with him and like intimidate him and bully him. And the first part of the film is like I love that noir kind of dialogue where everything is like double entendres, and you slowly find out like he's going to investigate this one guy a japanese farmer that lived in the town and has went missing and the town essentially decides we need to kill this guy before he discovers what happened oh my god and the movie ends up basically being an indictment on racism against japanese americans uh during world war ii and it's, it's like a really in-your-face political kind of message wrapped up in this like really sweaty noir and it's uh 
It's just, it's a really badass movie. This is interesting. Like, I was actually thinking about that a few months ago. Like, are there any movies that, like, focus on, like, how we, you know, Americans treated, like, the Japanese around that time period? And yeah. That's interesting. Like, no, I, the, I couldn't think of any other ones, so. And, the, and this one this is cool. was, like, very kind of controversial when it came out because it is really in your face about, like, how racist America was during this yeah. time period. And once you find out what these townspeople did to this man, uh, basically after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, it's pretty, it's messed up. Um, and Spencer Tracy is great and cool and he's beating people up with one arm and getting in car chases with his one arm. And I don't know if you're into noir and you want to see kind of a modern Western take on it, this is a pretty good one. So check it out. Sounds cool. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds cool. What about you, Brandon? What you been watching? I feel like I'm in my like hater era right now. Like, <laughs> I've been looking at like movies that are like out of the theater, and I'm just not feeling anything lately. And I've been getting movies from the library, and I haven't been feeling those either. I got a whole stack two weeks ago, oh, and God. I didn't watch a single one, <laughs> and I had to return them a week later. I felt so much shame. <laughs> I guess I'm going to bring up the thing I liked the least, but I thought was the most interesting hmm. that I've seen recently, which was uh, something that James and I saw the trailer for when we saw Jackass Forever. The Foo Fighters film, Studio 666. Oh, uh, yeah. Looked like a fake movie when we saw the trailer. We were like, how is this real? <laughs> and uh, it actually played in theaters. It is a fictional piece about the Foo Fighters recording their real life 10th album in this, like, studio that has a history of being haunted uh in real what? life and um dave grohl decided to use that opportunity to make a metal exploitation throwback uh which i guess is why i think it's interesting like mm-hmm. all of the tropes of 80s metal exploitation are in this movie like they find this ancient book with alistair crowley's incantation spells uh and these like old thrash metal recordings that like can open a portal to hell um and it, the demons in those like old metal recordings inhabit Dave Grohl's body. And then he starts murdering his bandmates, which is a little weird. Cause one of the guys actually died right. in real life this year. And like, Oh, sick. There were like tabloid rumors about Grohl kind of like overworking him on the road and him kind of asking for a break. And in the movie, he's like a workaholic. Who's like pushing his bandmates like to oh, their man. break. So I don't know. It's a little morbid, Yeah. Wow. but okay. Here's what's good about it. Okay. All the jokes are bad, <laughs> but the gore gags are like actual practical gore and like really gruesome. Like people get chainsawed in half and like their skulls are bashed in with hammers and like it's like if someone's decapitated with like gardening shears. It's really gross. And also because they made a metal exploitation movie, they decided not to do a Foo Fighters soundtrack for this movie featuring the Foo Fighters. <laughs> Instead, they did the soundtrack under the pseudonym dream widow. And it's like actually legitimately great metal. Music. Oh, cool. Like it sounds like thrash and death metal hybrid. And it sounds like, like eighties throwback, just like all the gore is, which kind of blew my mind. Like I actually listened to the EP after the movie was over. And I, I don't really listen to new music that often anymore, mm-hmm. but I was like, okay, if I heard this without knowing who it was, I would think this is a pretty decent metal album. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. So it was interesting, but not good. Yeah. I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as you were describing the metal tropes, I was just 
nodding my head like, yes, yep, that yep. is awesome. Everything good, you're saying good. is awesome. Here's the problem. It's an hour and 46 minutes, and a lot of it is just them telling jokes, and they're not uh, funny. Yeah. <laughs> And then, like, every now and then, like, John Carpenter will have a cameo or, like, somebody <laughs> you actually like will pop in for, like, a single scene. Oh, wow. Uh, and then they leave and then you're left with all the Foo Fighters, of which there are, like, I feel like 30 uh, rhythm guitarists in this band. Like, this house is full <laughs> of dudes. <laughs> right. So Dave Grohl has a lot of people to kill. I don't, I don't know why, but as a child, I would mix up the Foo Fighters and the Red Hot Chili Peppers a lot. So as you were talking, I was thinking of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> and I would actually love to see the equivalent of this with, like, a jam band. Like, jam <laughs> band hell, I think would be very funny. Fish and hell Right, exactly. Yeah, Dave Matthews band. They're both, like, <laughs> yes. dueling. I don't know. You you made me kind of want to watch it. That's so. the thing. It's like not good, but like yeah. I've seen movies that are like mediocre and like I guess technically better quality, right? But aren't as interesting as this, like yeah. you know, piece of shit. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it was funny you mentioned the Chili Peppers because I was thinking, you know, they those are the, the last two like stadium rock bands right. that still make money right yeah. now, and I think they've actually also recorded an album at that same haunted house in real life oh really yeah. okay maybe that's why i was yeah so they're all tied up together yeah i don't know it might have it might as well have been the two bands like killing each other on screen <laughs> uh but yeah i don't know good soundtrack mediocre film some interesting gore gags i just think it's kind of cute that they spent all their like dad rock capital making right. like this like dead genre that we watched all, we, we watched all the best Metal exploitation movies for yeah. an episode of the show. They were all on YouTube. Like no one gives a shit about those movies. Right. So it's kind of like nerdy and cute that they made. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like version. it was coming from the heart too. Yeah. Yeah. They probably were teenagers getting stoned and eating pizza when those movies were right. like a legitimate thing. And now they're they're like, hey, we can make a movie and distribute it because we're millionaires. Let's make one of those. Right. You could say they brought it back yeah. from the dead. Yes. Oh. <laughs> yes. Spending their money wisely. I have no transition for this. I don't know if it's like brain fog from like yeah. the COVID recovery, but like I cannot jump from Foo Fighters no. to Charlie Chaplin. No. Uh, but Charlie Chaplin probably could because he's a very dexterous fellow. Um, yeah. Ooh, that's a good transition. Yeah. <laughs> I really tried my best. Um, but yeah, the, uh, we're going to talk about Charlie Chaplin. We're going to talk about a bunch of gags and goofs, um, some, some, uh, lots of wiggles and, uh, and a little bit of politics as well. And all that's coming up to you right now. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children. Victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed. The bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die. And the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. So I was inspired to pick this topic because on the last full podcast we had, um, we were talking about Tommy Boy and Dumb and Dumber. And so I was trying to think of the, the comedies that we watched when I was growing up. And this we watched a lot of Zucker Brothers, but The Great Dictator was probably are number one so i wanted to kind of revisit that and then also you know dive into the pool of chaplin so my pick for this episode was the great dictator it was directed in 1940 
by Charlie Chaplin. He directed all of these movies. He is the the star of all of these movies. And The Great Dictator is just a satire of Nazi Germany during the late 30s and 40s when um, Hitler is attempting to conquer the world. Um, it is pretty, like, slapstick. The, I think the thing that was hardest about this movie for me now is, like, he's making such a joke of Hitler and everyone around him, and it was made during a time when they did not realize, like, how horrific the Nazis were and, the, yeah. like, the depths of evil that they were going to. The, the original trailer is really over the top with that, where it's like, you know, Himmler kills people like this, and Charlie kills people with laughter. It was <laughs> right. like, oh, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I do think this was before the full extent of yeah, his crimes absolutely. were realized. And Chaplin yeah. even had said himself he would yeah. not have made the movie. It's, right. Had he it known. made me think yeah. about how, you know, information just traveled so much slower right. back then. Yeah. Yeah, they <laughs> have a scene... Know. Well, I can get into it. So so basically, the story starts out with this man who is a barber played by Chaplin. Chaplin plays um, the stand-in for Hitler and a Jewish barber. So it starts off with his barber. He is fighting in World War One in Germany. And um, Germany loses. He goes um, home to the hospital. And he is kind of like in a coma or in the hospital for a long time. So he doesn't realize, like, how the politics towards Jewish people are changing in Germany. So he goes back home to his um, to his community. There's, like, a lot of anti-Semitism that he is totally unaware of. And it's showing his shock in being introduced to this very hostile um, community. So the story follows um, Adenoid Hinkle's eventual invasion into um Austerlitz which is I couldn't tell if it was Austria or Poland but it's like a stand-in for a kind of like Eastern European like Central European country um so it it just the movie kind of flip-flops between Adnoid Hinkle and the Jewish barber as the Jewish barber is like falling in love in his community and trying to protect his people and Hinkle is getting more and more violent. Um, the movie ends with this kind of like comedic switch. Um, Adenoid Hinkle goes hunting and then he is mistaken for this Jewish barber who is on the run um, and the Jewish barber is mistaken for Adenoid Hinkle and he is kind of thrust into giving a speech during the invasion of Austerlitz, and he um, delivers the speech, which is probably one of the most famous scenes in this movie. It's this, like, three-minute monologue about the indomitable spirit of man and, like, the cruelty of man and how our spirits can rise to a, to a greater place of humanism and, like, this evil can be overcome. So my main takeaway is, like, kind of what I was saying earlier. It is trying very frankly to deal with the political reality of Nazism at the time. So it's, like, it, it was frank, and it, and it was, like, attacking Hitler during a time when I think that would be, you know, like, somewhat difficult, but it's still not grappling with 
like the depths of evil. And it's also like it just felt so naive to me now, like that speech, especially, you know, it's like there are evil men with machine hearts and machine minds. And, you know, we can rise up because we're men and we can do like great and wonderful things. And we, I don't know, me and James were just sitting on the couch and like so many horrible things have happened since that time, you know, and especially with the political reality we're living in right now. Uh, I don't know. It was I. I was. I felt very conflicted about this like gem of my childhood. Well, I I do think though, like he obviously couldn't predict what would happen the next hundred years, but like essentially, democracy did win, and there was. I think there was a period of time post World War II, like late forties into the fifties, where American exceptionalism and idealism felt like it was coming true. You know, like the American dream is alive and real uh, because we conquered the evil and democracy wins. But as time has gone on, there's chinks in the armor. And now we kind of see that the world's way more complicated than that. So it's like totally naive, like you're saying. But I think in the short term, it's a nice thought. I kind of need that optimism in my life, though. <laughs> yeah. I feel yeah. like leftist politics lately have been so defeatist. Right. That, yeah. like, it was kind of nice to see someone be like, actually, at heart, like, the overall mass of people, like, are good and yeah. can do good things. It's just like the small number of fascists, it's easy to, like, cede power to them. And we could overpower them if we like collectively work together. Yeah. Like that kind of sentiment I feel like is actually very useful right now. Where like so much leftist response to what we're not talking about right now, which is the Supreme Court just right. like ruling us back like a century in a week. Yeah. Um so much response to that is just damage control and like harm reduction. And it's like there's something defeatist about that to me where it's like yeah. I kinda need this I, I you can call it naive. I mean, it is, but like, I kind of need that like spirit rabble rousing right now because otherwise, I'm just gonna like go into a dark <laughs> internet hole where yeah. I just scroll and look at footage of cops beating protesters into the fucking street, and like, it's hard to not just give up. If yeah, you do nothing but that. Yeah, that's true. And like, every time I watch the speech, it does like stir a part of my heart. But it, I think there is this. There's this part especially where he says like we can use the power of technology and like fly into the future or something and like going from that to then like you know watching whatever bullshit reality show we're watching and like all of the like ads for cryptocurrency it's like (laughs) like humans could have done like a little better but i do i do agree (laughs) with you actually like i think there are some like conflicting things I've read about the response to that speech. Like some people thought it was preachy and like they didn't care for it at the time. I think hmm. other people, but I only read that in one place, so I'm not yeah. actually sure. But I mean, it has like sustained in the cultural place for a reason. I do think there's something like truly uplifting about it. Yeah, it's just it's a little hard to grapple with. I do think it's preachy. Oh, definitely. And the scene that I feel like, like Chaplin is a great speaker. Like that speech is very 
well orated. Which is funny for someone who made his career in pantomime. Yeah, <laughs> but, but and that's what I'm getting at. The scene he that waited actually, so long. <laughs> the scene that actually really affected me emotionally was where you know he's playing with the globe. Yeah, and he's doing this like these beautiful ballet movements with this giant globe, and it's you know an obvious metaphor for the way that like powerful men use the world as their like plaything. And that to me was working more at Chaplin's strengths, which is like pantomime. And the scene at the end is a little too in your face preachy for me. Like I found that scene to be way more affecting and powerful. I like his anger. Like I like Mm -hmm. the like political anger, like just trying to like reach to the screen and like shake you awake at a time where like Hitler was basically like America was just uninvolved and like other well, uh, some people yeah. actually some politicians actually supported Hitler right. even at that time in the states like on an artistic level I kind of agree with you but it's in the way that like I have the most basic response to Chaplin <laughs> I'm kind of diffusing something here where like I think there's no way any of us could say anything new about this guy because yeah. like so much has been written and like discussed with him forever but like I had never seen this one before. I'm very used to the tramp character yeah. from his early films. And watching the two halves of this, where like half of it is him kind of halfway doing the tramp mm-hmm. as the barber character, and the other half is him like going to this new later era where he was like doing speaking roles and like um, just kind of expanding his uh, political rhetoric to being like very specific to specific issues. Right. Like, my basic response is just like the silent stuff is funnier, mm-hmm. <laughs> but these movies are still good. Like I still liked the later ones, but like I'm laughing at the bits where he's shaving his girlfriend's face right. uh, because he's like so lost um, in love with her in the barbershop. I'm not laughing so much when he's doing fake German gobbledygook speech. Right. Yeah. Like, it reminded me of like Alec Baldwin doing Trump where it was like, mm-hmm. it's funny in theory that the person he's impersonating would watch this and like hate it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. But me sitting there watching it, I'm not laughing and I just feel kind of like uncomfortable. I kept thinking of like all the like Sasha Baron Cohen movies. Yeah. What's the dictator? Like the, the, the dictator. dictator. Yeah. And that Showtime show that he had where he kind of disguised himself and brought all these politicians yeah. Yeah. on. It was interesting because I've never seen this. I didn't know this movie existed. So just like watching like that influence. Oh yeah, and on like Mel yeah. Brooks and yeah, yeah, definitely Jojo Rabbit, yeah. yeah. And oh. like to be honest, um, I just like didn't dive too far into the politics of any of these movies. Interesting, just because like I just can't handle it <laughs> right now. I was like everything, like I'm like I just let it all fuck off and burn because I just want to watch this for all the yeah. the goofs and right. spoofs, which was goofs. fun. Yeah, his body language is so interesting, and just watching this like little goofy dude like just flutter around the screen mm-hmm. and do all kinds of crazy stuff was so much fun to me. Yeah. He's adorable. He is very yeah. He's so cute. Yeah, he looks <laughs> like very pocket size. Like if um Polly Pocket had a dad, <laughs> it would be him. But I don't think these movies would be that interesting without the politics. Yeah, it's just I'm like sure. usually they're very broad like slobs versus snobs kind of thing yeah. where it's like he's like a destitute man of the people. Um, and has these like populist wins over aristocrats and it's very easy for like that to translate to comedy like i don't yeah. know it's like him getting one up on rich people while he's like a 
basically a homeless person. Right. Um, is very easy jokes. Uh, this is like more ambitious in a way because you were like calling out like a real life political figure. Yeah. And really getting into the details. Is this like, I can't think of an earlier film that, or maybe I'm just not thinking of it, that had one actor playing like two main roles like this. It's very nutty, Professor. This is his clumps. Yeah, yeah he's clumps. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was so cool. Yeah. When I was a kid, the first time I watched this, I was so confused. And I thought that it was the same person. He had like a split personality. <laughs> so he was just Ooh, like. Well, yeah. that's actually. I mean, yeah. And then at the end, that's an interesting way to view it. At the end, I thought like, <laughs> oh, he like came to a sense. Anyway, I was an idiot. Uh, <laughs> no, but I think that's kind of interesting though, because well, when you th- you were a- you were thinking deeply, that's right? Because thank you, it's, you know the good and the evils of man. Yeah, but it's just being visualized by the same person that is uh, like the angel and the devil on your shoulder that is a generous rating of my childhood <laughs> I, I love it i i do definitely prefer the silent stuff i think after watching mm-hmm. these four all bangers like all bang- <laughs> yeah the, uh, the other one They're all the other good. ones we're going to talk about which are well two are silent and another talkie but yeah. i just think it's so funny that chaplin himself hated the idea of like talking mm-hmm. films like he actively tried to avoid like he basically had to be dragged into the modern era and like i think he was proven right uh, kind of with comedy like at least the comedy i like is usually slapstick silly physical comedy yeah. and you don't really need dialogue if it's really good if the actor can like pantomime and uh, has physical talent that to me is like the essence of what is funny. And so like the early stuff, the silent films capture that. The funny thing is that nothing we're watching today is early stuff. Like, no, yeah, <laughs> this is like all late period Chaplin. He just like was so reluctant. But to, we like, are at an interesting time where it's that transition. Right. Yeah. 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 Silent to talking. Yeah. Like one is the, his last silent film. The next is like, the transition, yeah. This is his first speaking film, Ooh, and we we didn't do this purposefully. I think we just kind of picked like, yeah, hey, this looks no, cool. Absolutely. Isn't that wild? Yeah, I just it was really interesting for me to like because this was the first Charlie Chaplin movie I ever watched. I I I think I saw Gold Rush as well and Modern Times. So like, I wasn't inducted into his pantomime, but I just thought this movie was hilarious. Like, and it has some Zucker brother moments too like uh there's a scene where he's like wants to call the or no no the um dictator of like italy of bacteria is calling him (laughs) and and his um handler hair garbage says um oh he he can't come to the phone right now he's a little horse no no he's sick you know (laughs) just like that I, I laughed for like two minutes just being the age I am now. Like that's <laughs> totally my shit. And when I was, it was just like the little, these little joyful moments, like that scene with the Hungarian dances when he's like shaving, um, shaving that man who's like totally clean shaven and like his sweet moments with Hannah. Hannah, who I think also like a third of the reason I love this movie is because Hannah is a badass, played by 
Paulette Goddard. Yeah. Um, and her name is Hannah. So bacon coins and muffins. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All the kinds of pudding cool stuff. Her puddings. So I just had such a base relationship with this movie when I was a kid, and I thought it was like so beautiful and uplifting, and I would like cry every time I watched it. And as I've gotten older, like I still love this movie, but as I've grown. And as I've seen the world change politically, like that part of it has changed. But, you know, I love Charlie Chaplin's pantomime, but I will also always love this movie. And if you have, I don't know, everybody knows this is a pretty good movie. But I I think it's like maybe my politics have gotten a little more cynical, but the core of like when he's doing the pantomime, that still connects with me and makes me feel like a child. Mm -hmm. So that's again why I was saying like, I like when he's not yeah. talking, but when you start to like overtly talk about politics, you know, you get mm-hmm. a little cynical, but there's a childlike wonder to the tramp stuff. I think there's like one way in which the politics are like bulletproof in the tramp barber characters storyline, at least where like the way that he comes out of a coma and everyone else has gotten used to these incremental mm-hmm. fascist, right. like, just ceding power to these like fascist bullies. Um, and he comes out of the coma. He's like, why would I act like that? Why, right. why would this rule yeah, exist? Yeah, exactly. It's a shocking affront right. to him. And yeah, he just completely like disregards the rules that everyone else is living under because yeah. he doesn't know about them. Like that stuff I think is like solid. Yeah. Like that is like very astute. And there are ways that like we've gotten used to fascism being part of like normal public discourse over the past like i don't know five to ten years that i feel like a decade ago we would have been if you could time travel from a decade ago till now you'd be like what the fuck happened (laughs) nazis are just like in office now yeah they just got a new haircut and called it alt-right and now they're electable i i think there's something like very solid about that that angle yeah that's true and that's kind of like the attitude he has throughout the film and that that is the same like trying to shake you out of an attitude that he has at the end it's like you can't allow yourself to become numb to this yeah and i do think that that is still um potent Street Market in the poor South London neighborhood where Charlie Chaplin was born. His music hall performer parents separated when he was a baby. He spent long periods in children's homes and the workhouse. There's nothing to show that Charlie Chaplin was ever here. If the film world legend is to be believed, then maybe he wanted it that way. Up till now, it's been thought that he was embarrassed by his poverty-stricken roots. But local people who remember a visit Chaplin made to East Street as an old man say he was immensely proud of his humble origins. Yeah, he was walking through East Street, probably just after he wrote his book. He was walking through and my father recognised him. He just read his book and uh, he put his arm round him and he just took him into our shop and was sitting there talking to him for about, uh, about an hour, uh, talking about different stars and different things about his life. In 1921, the cinema newsreel showed a triumphant Chaplin returning to London. By then, he was one of Hollywood's greats. So, like we said, uh, we're mostly talking about late period Chaplin, but like 
the movie I picked, I thought was from his like classic silent era. Cause I'm so used to like the kid, uh, the circus and, um, the gold rush. I did not realize that city lights was like after talkies had been, been introduced, but I'd never seen it before. I knew it was like one of those classic silent films that I had missed. Apparently by 1931 Chaplin was like in total control of his stuff. He basically created his own studio, um, basically unionized with other directors, this studio called United Artists, and built his own little, like, it's not as big as, like, a Universal lot or something, but a little movie studio lot where he would just, like, spend years and years, like, crafting individual gags and just figuring out a movie on the go. And City Lights was one of the first ones he did like that. And it's him basically deciding that pantomime is like the height of comedy <laughs> before it's no longer viable. I'm going to make the wrong? best <laughs> pantomime movie I could possibly make. And he cranked out a masterpiece over the course of like four yeah. or five years. I watched this about two or three times since we decided to do this episode, <laughs> partly because I loved it, but partly because I could not remember the plot for the life of me. Like <laughs> I remembered so many individual sequences, like, him doing the boxing thing where he's yes. like hiding behind the ref, uh, him sleeping on the statue and like the cops are like chasing him off, but he gets stuck on the sword up his butt. Like so many classic gags in this, but I could not remember the plot and I still don't think it matters, but I'm, I'm going to run it down. <laughs> I agree with you with the movie I'm going to talk about as well. Yeah. I keep trying to go over the plot, but it's the gags that really stick out and it seems like he didn't really have a you know full story in mind when he made these movies like he was just like on the set he'll like figure out a set piece he wants to do and then he'll work out the gag over and over and over again until they get it precisely right i kind of love that about all these like when i'm just trying to not that i would confuse like some things in modern times with like city lights and I'm like, wait, which one's the one with the blind woman again? And I'm like, oh, city lights. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're basically like goof vehicles, right? Yeah, yeah, and the the plot really is just driving him from one set piece to another, right? In this one, he's the classic tramp character, meaning he just sort of like drifts from situation to situation, <laughs> sleeps he, wherever he wants to sleep, wherever he can, <laughs> you know, not be hassled by cops and by uh, newsboys, <laughs> right? Uh, his mortal enemy on the street. Damn newsboys. <laughs> He falls in love with a blind flower sales girl um, who, you know, hangs out by the public park and sells flowers out of a little basket. And through a mishap, misunderstanding, she assumes that he is a wealthy man. Uh, and he is very much not. He's even lower than her on the, the social ladder. So through other happenstance, <laughs> he actually saves a very wealthy man from killing himself by throwing himself in the river. And that man is piss drunk a lot and every time he's drunk he loves the tramp he thinks they're like best friends and every time he sobers up he does not recognize his new friend at all um so, so sad it keeps it. fucking up his life like, yeah uh he keeps getting into like worse and worse mishaps because this like drunk playboy is uh pulling him into his wealthy world and then kicking him out of yeah. it very quickly through a bunch of different gags <laughs> uh you know chaplin ends up like stealing money from the rich guy giving it to the blind woman so that she can get surgery to fix her sight and um he goes to jail for the theft and um at the end there's this very touching reunion between the two lovers that honestly made me tear up and i don't think that any of his other movies ever made me like emotional like that mm -hmm. i think that's probably why it's really well remembered because it has that final 
emotional wallop. But also, I think it's just very well remembered because every joke is fucking hilarious. Yeah. I love the way that the um, flower girl is, like, filmed. She almost looks, like, angelic the way that, like, Mm -hmm. there's this interesting, like, blurriness that surrounds her where she feels like a ghost sometimes. like Vaseline on the lens, yeah. Oh, Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I I thought that was really cool. So that's, like, when I think of this movie, I automatically, like, just think of that. And it's very, like, I don't know, her, like, Art Nouveau look. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. I just think of drunken shenanigans. The box. I, I always lo- think of that boxing I, scene. I love the drunken shenanigans. Yeah. <laughs> Every time he gets like rip roaring drunk, and he's like, "Oh, my friend!" Yeah. Just like <laughs> like rolling him around in his convertible. He's yeah. basically pouring liquor directly down the right. tramp's gullet. <laughs> and Chaplin's got this like thing that happens when you get so drunk, but you're like confident that you ha- you have this. Like, yeah. you're too drunk to be in public. You're like, I got this. I got this. <laughs> and then you, like, immediately fuck up. Yeah. Like, uh, he thinks he's eating spaghetti, but he's actually eating, like, the string on a balloon right. uh, in a restaurant. <laughs> Stuff like that. And all the jokes are set up that you see the punchline coming from, like, a million miles away. And the humor is you watch him avoid falling into the pitfall. Yeah. And then edging closer oh, to it. Mm-hmm. And then going further beyond, like, where the joke should end. It's all just masterfully crafted, like, and then the guy gags. comes up and he's yeah. you know, eight feet tall. Or yeah, like, and I, I love the like precariousness, like where he's trying to save the drunk man from falling into the water, and d- when he's always on the edge of like falling off of a ledge or something. Yeah, and in that scene and the boxing scene too, there's like a repetition of it, it is like a choreography. Mm-hmm. Like you'll see kind of the same movement done multiple times and then there's like a flourish of something different to kind of like catch your eye the boxing scene i so funny (laughs) so good and it's so funny but it also really pulls you in dramatically because you're like he could win i feel like he's just getting by by the skin of his teeth and his like kind of wily dexterity and then you know inevitably knocked out I don't know if there's really much to say about this because I feel like it's just like an ideal. Like, it's got the slapstick gags like perfectly executed. Mm -hmm. It's got the romance, which I thought was like genuinely emotionally effective. And then it's got class politics in that these two poor people are like having to make a life out of the crumbs that follow this rich man's pocket. And he just Mm -hmm. treats them as like playthings for whenever he wants to have a good time. But those are the three elements that are, like, so essential to, like, Chaplin's great works. And, like, they're all just done really well here. And that's all I have to say about it. Like, it's, <laughs> just like, it's just, like, a like a perfect ideal of his stuff. I don't even know if it's my favorite movie of his. But I feel like if you're going to sell someone on, like, what the Tramp saga is like and, like, what, what it is at its best, like, this is a pretty good ideal. Yeah. My favorite film is actually the one that James picked. Well, and, you know, I agree with you about... City Lights movie being the one you would want to show someone who had never experienced a Chaplin before. But I think I enjoyed Modern Times, the movie that came out after the most out of any of the ones we're going to talk about. So it actually, he, I guess, was on this tour after doing City Lights and it was a big success. He went around the world and talked to some very influential leaders like you know Winston Churchill and Gandhi and really I don't want to say got radicalized but he definitely started to form really strong political opinions 
And this was at a time when like the Great Depression was in full effect. There were, you know, people living in shanty towns and food lines. And so modern times is this kind of in-between transition of the like totally silent city lights era and then the full-on political talkie of like the great dictator because it has elements of both and it is notably the first film where you hear the tramp talk although he does like more like fake it's a jibber jabber (laughs) of he does like a fake italian song the same way he does like fake german and like hitler's voice which which is funny because like the first time you hear him talk it's like the jibber jabber is the most universal of languages so in this film he's the tramp and he works in a factory the first maybe 20 minutes of this film or my favorite 20 minutes of any of the chaplains that we watched were him working on this assembly line and trying to keep up with production and then to help production they create this feeding machine that's like (laughs) Force feeding him corn so and sick. spewing out his mouth. Like, have you seen the like diagram of him operating that? Uh uh-uh. uh. Like that whole scene is just him and his body. Like, um, you know, the plate that uh rotates and shoves food in his mouth is up to his shoulders, and that's mm-hmm. what you see on camera. And underneath, in both hands, he has like controls. Wow. And is like operating that... the like machine himself because he's Weird. like such a physical master of this stuff. Damn, that's so cool. Yeah. And it's like, it's genuinely hilarious. That corn scene hurts my teeth when I like watch it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he ends up kind of creating a workers revolution or rebellion. By mistake. And, yeah, by mistake. <laughs> um, and kind of like you were saying earlier, Brandon, with City Lights were like the plot. It kind of does this flip flop. And what I found so funny about this one, it flips off from him like going to jail and then getting out and being like, man, I wish I was back in jail. Because, like, <laughs> at least jail, I got fed. I had a place to sleep. There was good cocaine. Yeah, there he gets. <laughs> and it, so it's a series of gags of him, like, he does the cocaine, but it becomes a hero in the jail. So they let him loose. And then he meets the the woman he falls in love with. And she gets arrested for stealing bread. And then he's like, no, 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 it was me. And then I want to go back to jail. I want to go back to jail. <laughs> and then he goes to, and, like... Goes to a cafeteria and eats a crazy amount of food and doesn't pay the bill to try to get arrested. And then, you know, again, he gets out. He gets a job at a department store. And that's another one of my favorite scenes of mm, him roller skating yeah. inside. And I was screaming when that oh, happened. When like, he's on the, there's like this edge of this like cliff yeah. essentially. And the way they shot that was really cool too. Like the made me so nervous. There's no actual drop off there mm-hmm. it's like just the edge of a set but they put like a miniature of the like lower floor in front of the camera yeah so it looks like there's like this perilous wow. like drop oh, off so cool. i didn't know that yeah it was, it was legit it was very well no done it's and yeah I- thrilling yeah <laughs> yeah that's one of my one of my dreams has always been to um sleep the night in a department store bed oh. so uh, i loved love that scene i feel like there's so many 80s like horror movies that are like that like overnight sleepovers at the mall oh totally i'm thinking like night of the comet and oh yeah i guess chopping mall definitely chopping mall. yeah well i've always thought about that like being a manager at a wine warehouse and like I have the key code and I lock up every night. I'm like, 
this place feels wonderful because we have to keep the wine mm-hmm. cold. It's nice and airy. Like I could just set up a cot in the back and just like sleep at work yes. and like not have we to have pay a, rent. A slumber party. Yeah. We can record swamp flicks back there. <gasps> Good. <laughs> In the wine I would, cellar. I'd probably get fired, but it would be worth it. <laughs> worth At least it. bring your roller skates. Oh, yeah. yeah. I wonder if this had any influence in that movie with Jennifer Connelly when she's in Target and they're roller skating. Oh. <laughs> Maybe so. Probably. Whoa. I found the relationship between um, Chaplin and I can't think of the female character's name. It's the Her, same the actress. The actress is Paulette Goddard, I think. Yeah, it's the same. Is it the same from, actress? From it's The Great same. Dictator. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, City it's usually now. just who he was dating at that yeah. time. A woman who's like 20, 30 20, years, yeah. years old. They were married at some point. Yeah, yeah. He married a, he married a <laughs> And then they had a, um, a divorce in Mexico. He kept marrying teenagers throughout his life. Oh, as yeah, God. God. It gets worse. Let's ignore that. We'll, we'll that talk point. about that whenever we get to mine. Um, but yeah, I really liked those two as like a comic duo, like in their little like shack house that's falling apart yeah. and mm-hmm. I, I thought yeah. all that was so funny and I just loved like the like both of them together yeah I like them together because in City Lights she's like extremely passive yeah uh-huh. and I feel like Paulette Goddard in this film and also in The Great Dictator she's like kind of not like on equal footing but she is just as much an active participant yes and a rebel yeah yeah Yeah, she's like stealing she steals the screen too like there were times where i'm like more focused on her than chaplin because she's kind of got a a bigger presence oh my god she yeah she's totally magnetic yeah and that that's where for me personally this one exceeds city lights as well like i think the romance is more nuanced and i love you know they're imagining the american dream you know they have this nice house and come home and uh, I'll cook dinner for you after a long day's work. And then you see the reality of when they finally get a home and it's one of these shanty houses. And I found the ending to be very bittersweet too, where they both like get arrested and, but eventually they, you know, they find jobs as like her as a dancer and him. And they just kind of walk off into the sunset. Like, you know, we're going to figure it out. We'll make it happen. Like yep. that to me was a beautiful, like have more realism of romance. And so I, I really dug that aspect of it. And I also thought the political satire was on point. Like that is what industry and capitalism, what it does to the human spirit. And it's still what we're essentially living through today yeah i i actually rewatched this recently when we did playtime as a um oh yeah movie of the month mm-hmm. and i was thinking a lot about like automation of labor and just technology becoming more and more a part of like people's lives and like how at that time because that was like close to the start of the pandemic like how work from home was supposed to like free up all this oh, space yeah. but actually it was just like bringing my employer more and more into my personal life yeah exactly and it's hard not to think about that in the scene where he tries to just get a fucking break from the assembly line and goes to the bathroom and his boss just like pipes in on mm-hmm. like this giant teleprompter and he's like hey your break's over get back to work <laughs> get back to work i i also think it it's interesting too how those ideas of productivity do become ingrained in the workers themselves like when he's running from the cops that he doesn't forget to clock in for work. Like, right. cause at least if I'm running for the cops, like I want to be on the clock. <laughs> like that is a very astute observation with what the modern economy does to the workers yeah. soul. 
Yeah, I related to this movie a lot, and <laughs> it made me made me feel very sad. One thing that I thought was interesting, and I'm not sure if I'm a hundred percent remembering this correctly, but so it, it's like partially silent or partially speaking, mostly silent. And from what I remember, the speaking comes from like the boss or from the intercom that is shouting orders basically at the workers like that those are the actual voices that you hear um and other than that you're getting like the cute cards or just like bop, 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 bop. Yeah. but then at the end he gets to sing and it's his real voice and he is like supposed to be singing this song for this like uh kind of like catering band and he does this like si- silly little Italian song and everybody's like really enjoying it. And his employers are, or well, eventually they're like, everybody loved you. You were great. But it felt like a little rebellion of, of humanism. He's like doing this sassy little dance and everybody loves it. And I, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that like nobody gets a voice like none of the workers get a voice until the very end. And I thought it was a really touching like sweet moment of humanity amidst the automization. Yeah, that restaurant is alive. Those <laughs> machines are not alive. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But they are kind of beautiful. Like yeah. the set design especially in the beginning is when he's going through the gears. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's like, so wow. cool. It is pretty. That was another thing I was thinking about like I don't know. A lot of the middle part, like when he's in jail, when he's in the restaurant and things like that, you could insert into any Chaplin movie. Yeah. I'd actually kind of half remembered the shack he lives in with his girlfriend being in a different film. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it was like the kid I was picturing, but like mm-hmm. those machines are like what is visually distinct about this because he gets the same job back later in the film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking about how relatable the labor stuff is, but like now I have to do this same shit in a cubicle with no flavor right visually yeah. whatsoever at least these machines are like very beautiful to look at yeah <laughs> like, i always get the sense that he wasn't like a hundred percent against technology and no it, it's yeah. more like if we can use the technology to do a lot of good but there is this tremendous downside if we do it improperly yeah and i think unfortunately like Again, he couldn't foresee the future, but we chose the wrong path. Yeah, and the the majority of machines are owned by wealthy people that use them to like create more efficient systems for themselves. I had one other point I wanted to make, which is that I think Chaplin composed a lot of the music in these films too. And he, oh, really? I think this is the film that has Smile, yeah, which I didn't realize was composed by Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> and it, so it was like, blah, 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 blah. and I, I was really confused. But yeah, he composed this like absolutely iconic, oh, cool. pretty talented song. guy. Yeah. Yeah, to be directing and on camera and doing the music, like a little bit of a control freak. But yeah, absolutely. That's what a filmmaker has to be, I guess, to yeah. like get a distinct vision across. Does he? I mean, I think this is like the auteur theory idea well, yeah. of what a filmmaker. One of the earliest is. auteurs around, like to have that much control over the final product without a studio dictating what to sell. I mean, I, I watched the little Criterion essays about Chaplin before. We did this, and he would have one scene where they would rehearse it three, four hundred times. And I get that, like, you want perfection, and he was a perfectionist. But man, that sounds pretty awful 
to work for someone like that. And that's like you hear so many great directors who treat their actors like shit. And, yeah. they, and so it seems like one of the first examples of that idea of what an auteur is. But it's hard to argue with the results, baby. It's pretty <laughs> Well, that's how I think that about movies so are good. <laughs> Most auteur, like modern auteurs, I like their films. Yeah. But yeah. then you hear these horror stories about how they are on set. This hasn't really come up lately, but I've been thinking a lot about how people think about auteur theory and like a lot of people are pushing away from it now where it's like, actually, movies are a collaborative art where it takes 300, 400 people to make even the smallest movie. Yeah. It's like no one's denying that. It's just saying that there is someone who is wrangling all those someone people and getting a clear charge. personal vision across despite yeah. how many moving parts it is. And like he obviously had... He was managing it. Yeah. <laughs> he built a little city pretty much like in a suburban neighborhood in, in Los Angeles and like basically created little worlds inside of it like all these all these images especially from city lights in modern times are like on the same lot where they just rebuilt sets on the same mm-hmm. like studio stage over and over again it's pretty fucking incredible yeah mm-hmm. that's wild yeah i mean i could do it you know yeah <laughs> yeah easy i mean it would be easier if you were born into wealth and with a uh, father or mother who were already in the industry, right. which is how most people get a chance yeah. to exert that kind of control. Right. But was not how Charlie Chaplin got, he yeah. was yeah. like, which is amazing as well. Yeah. He was like born in like workhouses and yeah. like did like vaudeville for like the longest time before yeah. he got to Hollywood. Yeah. That's why I feel like this and the great dictator, like the political message is so salient because it feels like it's lived in. Like, yeah. If you know what it's like to be hungry, then you know about food lines and the sort and eventually america got so communist spooked around that time that like even though he never declared himself a communist like they couldn't handle his politics oh he was like investigated by the fbi yeah yeah and chased out of the country yeah and that's basically after the great dictator he had to make movies in europe yep because the american press like not leave him the fuck alone and that's a perfect segue to our next movie yes it is (laughs) (laughs) so the film that I chose now this I didn't watch any Charlie Chaplin movies ever in my life until we watched all these together. So I was just kind of poking through the list and I'm like, ooh, Monsieur Vado. Yeah. That sounds cool. Yeah. And that's what I picked. So this movie is sort of Charlie Chaplin. He's a little older and he is leaving his tramp role to become a dapper French lady killer. So he kind of grows out his mustache, lets his gray hair come in. And he talks in this one, too. So Orson Welles sort of came up with the idea to create a movie about this real-life serial killer in France who would murder wealthy women. And he wanted Charlie Chaplin to star in that movie. And Charlie Chaplin's like, this sounds cool, but I don't want you to direct it. If I'm starring (laughs) in it, I want to direct it. So he gives Orson Welles like 5,000 bucks. And told him to fuck off. And told him to fuck right (laughs) off. And then there's also some controversy where like Orson Welles is like, no, he only gave me $1,500. And like, I think there was like more promise to him apparently that wasn't given to him. But he gets like this like little credit in the beginning of the film. Yeah. So yeah, whatever Orson Welles. So yeah, so I think Chaplin started writing this like more in the early 40s. And it took a long time for this movie to actually like get made because he was dealing with a lot of crap in his personal life. Like kind of what we were talking about, like, you know, everyone's like, he's a communist, get him out of here and let's investigate him and put him through hell. 
And his love life was very interesting. Like he was dealing with this like paternity lawsuit. I can't remember her name, but there was a woman who was like, Hey, we were together and I'm pregnant with your kid. And he's like, yeah, that's not my kid. And he like essentially tries to like, get her arrested for prostitution in some kind of bizarre way. And I think they proved through DNA that it wasn't his kid. Right. But he still had to, but he was still the father of the child. In court, which is ridiculous. Yeah. It's crazy. Whatever though. He's a millionaire. He can handle it. Exactly. Which is so funny. Cause like, he's a communist and I'm like, but he sure loves capitalism. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Love that money. Exactly. So, well he, so that kind of prolonged this process. And then he married, I think Uda, which is his like fourth and final wife. The final boss. Right? Final That's boss. <laughs> final wife. Which is so bizarre. She was 18 years old and he was 52. Oh Eek. my God. Okay. So it's super Ew. disturbing. Yeah. I'm like, this Okey movie, well, I love the movie, but the more like I started like looking into like the, you know, the making of how it came to be. I'm like, I don't know about this guy. Um, <laughs> it doesn't sound a, that I cool anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he has a soft voice like Paddington, though. He seems like such a nice guy. Oh, but that makes it creepier yeah, it's way to me. Creepier, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in this movie, he is a lady killer. He seduces wealthy women and kills them to then get their money. But he has a reason. Like, what's so interesting about this is Chaplin wanted to be like, well, what's the criminal's story? Like is he just killing to be an ass? And no, well, in this, in this case, from Monsieur Vaudou, he is killing because he has a handicapped wife and child at home and they're going through the depression. So he's like, you know, got to make money to support my family. So I'm just going to find rich ladies and marry them with a bunch of false names and get them off and off them and chop them up and, and get that money. I like how it's not um, consecutive. Like he's got like different fires cooking. Right. He's oh. got like different wives he can kill right. whenever he yeah, wants. Yeah, he kind of like goes through his <laughs> little book. He's like, oh. I love, like this reminded me a little bit of The Honeymoon Killers, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's such a dark comedy where there's some parts where I'm like, am I supposed to be empathizing with him? Or am I just supposed to be having a good time and laughing at all the weird shit he's doing? Like, you know, there's a scene where he's on a rowboat with one of his wives who's like <laughs> yeah. horrible, but I fucking love oh, this she's woman. Great. Yeah. And she's like, look at that fish. Look at that fish. Are you, what, why are you putting a worm on there? I don't want to eat a fish. I had a worm. And he's trying so hard to, like, kill her. And every time, like, he's about to do it and she turns around, he's, like, he crosses his legs and smiles and, like, kicks his little feet up like a little kid. There's a funny scene where there's, like, a garden party and two of his, like, identities are kind of coming together where someone that knows Mm -hmm. him as one person is, like, hey, and then one of his wives is there, too, and... He does his classic goofiness. And he's at a wedding. He's yeah, like getting he's married getting to a new married, wife. Right? Oh, yeah, shit. You're <laughs> right. Adding wife... another one to the collection. Yes, the collection of wives. And then also the wonderful bit where he is trying to poison um, one of his wives. Mm-hmm. And um, someone ends up using the poison as their peroxide to bleach their hair, which is very funny. So there's like a lot of humor into this really darkness of him trying to kill people. But then, like, towards the end, it kind of gets a little deep where he um, he's, he's caught. There's this bizarre scene where someone recognizes him and he, like, locks them up in this hallway. And then the woman passes out. And 
it's almost like he's ready to be caught. Yeah. Like well, he gives himself up. He yeah. gives himself up, and then um, yeah, he's brought to the guillotine, which is how the um, I think it's Henri Landu or something, the the serial killer. This is based off of. He died that way too. And, then and he, he gives he a big speech, he like in a, a great speech. dictator, yeah. where he like basically lays out the themes of his. Yeah, evil deeds. shit. I fucking wish I would like I would have wrote down what he says, but it's something like it's something along the lines of like if you kill a lot of people, you're a hero. Yes, like kind of like war. But like if you kill individual people, then you're a villain. Yes, exactly. And it, it's basically him saying like him killing women for their money is capitalism, and he was just playing yeah. the game that was dealt to him. Right. So this movie had a lot of controversy because he already had this reputation. And then I think there are multiple reasons people didn't like it. But a lot of it was that, oh, we're empathizing with someone who's murdering somebody. But that's why it's aged great. Great. That's why it's funny. (laughs) That's what we're living in now. I mean, we've had shows and movies for decades yeah, right that- which was kind of crazy to me and i'm like did this not happen before then like i keep i keep asking myself with these movies i'm like is this the first time it's not even happens? that far ahead of its time either because like in the 50s like post-war uh there was a studio in england called the ealing studio and they made comedies yeah. um the lady killers and kind hearts and coronets which are basically this movie revamped with alec guinness instead of charlie chaplin well, i think that's why didn't this this movie did very well in Europe, but not well right. in America? It just has a European sensibility that was probably a little ahead of its time. Right. But those movies got way better reviews in America, even. Yeah. Um, and it was just like, I love those movies. I even think Kind Hearts and Coronets might be like a slightly better version of the story. But like, Ooh. he basically just invented that whole deal. Like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's ahead of its time, but like by a decade. Like, yeah. It's not even like that yeah. far ahead. Right. But yeah, like you said, it like it's kind of incredible how that anti-hero story is basically all there is in the media landscape now. But not only that, but also that kind of meta breaking the fourth wall where he talks directly to the camera. Like we talked about that in like funny games and stuff. Like you are complicit in what I'm doing. You as a viewer, I Tanya was very heavy with that. Yeah, like that maybe wasn't that ahead of its time, but. Watching it now is like, damn, that seems pretty progressive. For, yeah, like, y'all yeah. are with me, turds. I do find him sympathetic in this sometimes, like you said, though, like especially the way he has a softness for <laughs> like stray cats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the little cat that he gets a sandwich for, and for the human stray cat, the woman who's like yeah, just released from prison right. and decides not to murder her. I really like that scene. Yeah, where he's like he poisons her wine. He's trying to get her to drink this wine, and she yeah, she was just released from prison, right? Right. And, and then so she t- starts talking about her husband and about love, and he like is kind of empathizing with her story and then he's like oh i think there's cork in that wine i'll get you a new glass like that this is just riddled with like goofy like he's trying to get his mistress to go to the bank and you know convince (laughs) her there's gonna be rent you know and that is just kind of like this little island in the middle of the movie that is anchoring it into something very sweet yeah and like i guess when he visits his wife his like actual Mm -hmm. wife at home that's part of it too he puts on a fet airs where he's like supposed to be this like high society like uh you know mm-hmm. social climber but he's not. He's I mean the movie like tries to pull that back a lot and show you like he's actually like near destitute and like right. desperate 
and uh, has an affinity for people who don't have this wealth in their life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and like wants to pull them up uh, with him yeah. by, by playing the game. And, you know, yeah. he gets very explicit about what that game is at the end. And that one particular wife of his is a great, like, screechy, not not his real wife, his, like, rowboat. I um, wish I knew her name. Wife. She's, like, my favorite yeah. character She's in this movie. She's got kind of a Lucille Ball thing going yeah. on. She's very loud. Yeah, uh, I mean, I thought Screech. it was interesting that quite a few of the wives were pretty annoying and awful. <laughs> so, like, he is the protagonist. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think it would be hard to make this movie and have the wives be like super sympathetic. Right. No, but know? I've seen that that a lot in like '80s screwball, yeah. con, con, you know, comedies where oh, that wife is terrible. We My gotta kill wife. her. Yeah. yeah, the mad wife trope. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't know, just to see it back then. That was one older wife who like doesn't want to pull her money out of yeah. the bank is the most. <laughs> fucking annoying person I've ever seen on screen. Yes. <laughs> She's yes. just so miserable. Yeah. It's kind of funny. But she didn't deserve to be murdered. No, Come on. she didn't. No, she didn't. Yeah, but it's a movie. Yeah, whatever. They're yeah. not real people. <laughs> I also, yeah, like, that wife, she was fine. This other woman has this, like, it's like her, she has this shrieky voice that gives her this indomitable shell around her, and he just can't kill her, and she's the worst one. I don't know. It just really tickles me that that he actually never succeeded in that particular conquest. And her life is just objectively great. She's yeah. like a drunken <laughs> heiress whose mm-hmm. husband disappears for months at a time, and she yeah. just, like takes over every party she walks into. Yeah. Love her. Yeah, she's great. (laughs) Fabulous. I don't really know, like I said earlier, if there's anything new to say about Mm -hmm. Charlie Chaplin at this point. I think we watched these, you said originally because James and Brittany said they had never seen one of his films before. Never seen a single one. So y'all have the freshest eyes coming into these. What, What is your like overall impression of the man and his work? Did you have a favorite out of the batch? A favorite mode? I, th- I think that um, Monsieur Verdoux is my favorite just because, I, like I said, I love the black comedy, like, lady killer aspect of it. I, and, and it brings in a lot of his physical humor, which I thought was really funny. I didn't expect to like all these movies as much mm-hmm. as I did. Like, at first, I'm like, oh, God, Charlie Chaplin. I'm like, it's probably going to be boring, which is why I've kind of, like, not dabbled into these yeah. movies yeah. for so long where I'm like... Okay, like some pawpaw is going to be like, you know, tapping people in the head with a cane and going, Woo. <laughs> and that's what we're going to watch. But I had fun with all of these. And I don't know. I just think it shows like how smart he is with how he moves and how his fucking like facial expressions mm-hmm. are so spot on. All of his mannerisms. Yeah, the way, mannerisms. Yeah. The way yeah, he moves so his cool. shoulders and the way he walks, yeah. like every single thing about that tramp character or when someone's going to beat the shit out of him and he just makes a cute face to like yes. uh, get out of it. <laughs> there, yeah. The it's thing, like a cartoon. Yeah. It is yeah, a definitely. live action. Car- yeah. I think the thing that blew me away was like how timeless it feels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It really feels like it would be funny a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now. And I like the films we chose. Cause I know we didn't really get into like early stage, but that transition from the tramp into the talkies, into like the Verdot, like the end of his career where he was still taking the slapstick stuff and then kind of innovating it and making it darker and stranger. And I actually liked this one, the second. It was pretty close to modern times for me. And then City of Lights was kind of a perfect little gym. It is. 
of a film. He was turning goth uh, <laughs> towards the end. So Get, I, I, yeah. I really, I liked all of these a lot. Yeah, I think, and you know, Brittany, what you were saying about like that you didn't necessarily feel called to watch them before this. Yeah. I feel that way all the time about like classic films from yeah. this era. It's like, like for some reason, I'm not convinced that they're classics because they are just as fascinating now as they were then. It's like, okay, maybe this is a classic because it was like really influential for its time. But like, truly, I feel like you could just put these and sp- particularly the Tramp movies, like you could mm-hmm. just put this on at a party and people would love it. Like it is just fun and funny. Yep. So I don't know if anybody listening to this hasn't watched a Charlie Chaplin movie, then, it, you know, They're we're good. recommending it. Also, what I don't even know if I should go on down this route, but it is interesting that like I have watched a lot of. Buster Keaton, who I don't get as much, to be honest. Right, and that so that was an interesting thing. Watching, having seen quite a few Buster Keatons, and then watching Chaplin, I was like, "Oh man, I like Chaplin mm-hmm. way better." And I think what it it's like he's willing to be the butt of the joke yeah. and to be goofy and Just silly constantly. <laughs> and yeah, and Buster Keaton, like the stunts were great, and but it always seemed this kind of like trying to portray himself as like this perfectionist and there wasn't like the sentimentality or the romance or the whimsical no, it's just more like i can't believe you pulled that off yeah this, yeah this whole deal. and so like i don't know chaplin for me has so much more yeah heart you know and the politics of it are pretty awesome yeah too. he started a revolution and he also let a man pour whiskey down his pants for like five straight minutes <laughs> that's, dude, just three come on. bottles that's of whiskey. that sums it up right yeah. there <laughs> Next week on the show, we are continuing the streak of like Criterion Channel selections. I think it's going to be like the third, fourth, no, fourth episode in a row. Wow. Uh, we're watching David Lean's Summertime, which I know nothing about other than that Catherine Hepburn's in it. And David Lean movies are usually very long. That's all I got. Mm. But it is summer right now, so maybe it's seasonally appropriate if nothing else. Lean into summer. There we go. Yeah. That's what we're titling it. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.